So, Michael, before you leave, so married 26 years? Okay, you're welcome. Okay, if you weren't here, he said today, married as many years now as not married before married. So, I know. I'm just messing with you as all. Not implying that you are old, Marla, at, at all. No. Congratulations. 23 years married? Very cool. Awesome. I am glad to be back with you. By the way, I'm Mark Kring, if you're new here. Um, I was on vacation for the last couple of weeks, so really glad that you're here with us. I'm looking forward to getting into Genesis 16 with you this morning and uh, continuing on with our E2E study. But before we do that, I would love to pray with you. So can we take a minute and let's do that together. Father, I thank you for every single soul in this auditorium and those who are participating uh, virtually right now. We recognize we are the church, and we have gathered together to not only worship, but to understand better who you are, and to better understand who we are before you. So God, I ask that through your word this morning, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit, the insight and the understanding that we gain from being in relationship with you, to know better how to respond to the things that you're doing in our life. Specifically, Father, as we take on the week ahead of us, we would like to walk better in a way that reflects you. And, and as a result of taking communion this morning to be reminded again who we are, Father, I ask that you would use all these things combined together to expand the kingdom, to extend the name of Jesus, use us as a, a witness in a world that needs desperately to know who you are. So Father, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Savior and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When I was in eighth grade, I had a phenomenal English teacher. She went out of her way to make the English language, the study of the English language, come alive for us in ways that I had never experienced before. And examples, she would pay for, with her own funds to take my class, eighth grade class, from Whitehall, where we grew up at, on the western shore of Lake Michigan, all the way across to Detroit to the Fox Theater to witness stage plays like Fiddler on the Roof. That's a phenomenal experience I had as a kid. She introduced me to John Steinbeck and Steinbeck's um, books that he had written, Grapes of Wrath and Of Mice and Men. And I was fascinated with the book Of Mice and Men and finding that within that book that John Steinbeck had made a quote that I didn't know wasn't original to him. I thought that it was, but the statement said, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Well, when he stated that, he was actually quoting Robert Burns, who was a poet who had written that like 100 years previously. And Robert Burns wrote that because as a poet, he was, he was working through some materials, and in the midst of his writing, he uncovered a mouse nest in his house, and he, he disassembled it unintentionally, he destroyed it, and, and killed the mice. Today, you would want to do that, but back then, apparently, that was the thing, he didn't want to destroy the mouse nest. So anyways, as he wrote this poem, he included this line in it, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. John Steinbeck quoted that later and then named his book after that poem of Mice and Men. Two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, Lori and I married off our daughter, Ashley, and we knew that as a result of having a wedding planned within the family that it was going to be exhausting and that physically and mentally it takes a toll on you. So we'd planned vacation after the wedding. 
and we had laid plans to go up north camping. Now, for some of you, it may not sound like a vacation to go camping, but in our family world, going camping is a good thing. And so we had made plans to use this camper that we bought a year previously. It was in great shape. And my wife's out working in the garden, so I go down to the area where we had it parked, and I bring it up on the driveway, and I open up that tent camper and lift up the top because it's a pop-up camper, only to find this thing has been completely destroyed by mice. And I found that the best laid plans of Mark often goes awry because the mice got into my world. And no kidding, big, huge holes. And for the next 24 hours, I was really sulking. And I complained to Lori. And we were trying to figure out a strategy. And I found out how much money it would cost to replace the canvas on that thing. And um, it was just not a good 24-hour period. But that was supposed to be our vacation, the beginning of our vacation. So we came up with a strategy. I suggested to her, you know what, we can still go. We like camping enough, let's just take a tent, and we'll do what we used to do when we were in our 20s, and we'll camp in a tent. And I, I actually came to the point in my life where I hated tent camping simply because of rain, right? Rain can really mess with your tent camping. But I was so determined that we would go, we'd at least get a few days away, let's go. So um, Lori has a, a, a Jeep with a hatchback in it, a, a Grand Cherokee, and so I said, I'll tell you what, We'll set up the temp at the campsite. We'll put our things in that, but we'll sleep at night inside the Jeep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> so we get to the campsite, and I'm looking up, and I'm noticing... There's a lot of storm clouds that are brewing over our head in northern Michigan. This is two weeks ago, mind you, in Traverse City, outside that area. And I thought, well, we'll get it set up really fast. And I'm getting things out, pulling it out. Lori's setting up the campsite. And I go to the hatchback of the back of the Jeep, open up the hatch. And I'd forgotten that she had placed in the back her 15-pound Lodge cast iron frying pan. So when the hatch goes up, the frying pan comes out. And it didn't drop flat like this. It dropped point first. Of course, I was barefoot, and it goes right on the big toe, right? And I didn't say what I wanted to say, <laughs> but I very quickly headed for the lake so I could stick my toe in the water. And of course, Lori's trying to figure out what happened and she wants to engage me in conversation. The last thing I want to do is talk at that point. And mind you, we tried to sleep in the Jeep that night. It did not work, and then the rains came, and I decided I'll sleep in the tent, and then it really came. And, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You're going to find this morning as we go into Genesis 16 that we are capable of coming up with strategies and plans that we think are going to solve problems and are going to fix issues. But what you're going to actually see today in the spiritual realm is there's a consequence of designing our own strategies instead of following God's strategies. The temptation is to get ahead of God and to try and fix things, even sometimes when we have the best of intentions, when we're acting in a way that we think is just going to help God out. And so we begin acting on his behalf. You're going to find in Genesis 16, it's like a case study on men and women in relationship, especially men and women in relationship in marriage. Let me just give you a brief review on Genesis 15, where we're at last time when we left off. Abram is not yet Abraham. His name hasn't been changed. But he's a spectator to the things that God's doing. 
God's invited him into a relationship, but God has also asked him to participate in a covenant. But Abram's been made a spectator in Genesis 15 of the covenant that God is enacting. So God is carrying out this ancient ritual of a blood covenant. But he does not invite Abram to participate in it because it's only being enacted by God and God's going to sign it and God's going to seal it. And Abram never participated in the signing and the sealing of the covenant for this reason. Because he's not capable. We as humans cannot make a covenant with God because we're not capable on our end. For this reason, God makes the covenant. Because the certainty of the promises that God makes to us, the covenant relationship, is based in who He is and His capacity to fulfill the covenant, not in our capacity because we break vows. We break our promises. We can't hold up our end of the deal. So God, when it comes to these eternal issues, has to be the one who initiates the covenant because if it depended upon us, it would fail because we fail to keep those promises. So what you find in the Bible is that God invokes a blood penalty upon himself, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a few minutes when we get to communion. So when you come into Genesis 16, the covenant's been made, and Abram is now 85 years of age, and Sarai is 75 years of age, and 10 years have passed from the time that the covenant was committed to. And this passage of time has triggered within them a lapse of faith. So because of that, Genesis 16 reveals this really painful detour. They didn't need to go down this trail, and it produced a long-lasting conflict, not only within their own household, but within the world that we live in today. The world that we live in today has a thing called the Arab-Israeli conflict, and that comes right out of Genesis 16. You'll see that unpacked this morning. But on a larger scale, an eternal scale, what has happened here is God has made His plans known Immediately following the establishment of the covenant in Genesis 15 with Abram, what you find on a big eternal scale is that Satan steps on the scene. Satan makes a movement. And I've told you, if you've been here at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me say that every time you see God making a move in Scripture, you find a counter move by Satan. Move, counter move, move, counter move. Satan trying to undo the things of God. And his fingerprints are all over this story, as we'll see now. Let's go into verse 1 of Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has given, has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. I'm going to put up on the screen the Hebrew interpretation of her name. It's, it's pronounced more accurately Hagar with a, a W sound there in the midst of the Hagar. That's very much an English way of saying it. But what I want you to see is the definition. To be a fugitive. Now, Hagar is actually a, a Hebrew name. But she's Egyptian. How did she get a Hebrew name? Well, because she's now a slave under Sarai. 
And as the mistress of the house, as the leader of the household, Sarai has the authority to change the names of those who belong to her. And she's obviously changed this woman's name to mean she's a fugitive. But right out of the gate, that's an interesting detail, but the much bigger issue that's going on here is we find that Sarai has been waiting a really long time for God's promise to be fulfilled. And it hasn't been. So she cooks up her own strategy. And what you find in her statements is she's demonstrating that she's not really concerned with God's glory. She's concerned with her own glory. So she's going to manipulate the circumstances. Watch what her goal is. Look at me on the screen. Just five words. That I will obtain children. It's not about God. It's about her. And she's going to use and manipulate her young servant to gain her objective. And you might remember the promise. God the Father had promised Abram that he would become a father, even in his old age, even though he wasn't a father yet, even though he's aged, God said, you're going to be the father, Abram, of a great nation, which automatically presumes his wife is going to be involved, but it didn't specifically say that Sarai would be the mother, even though her own words indicate that she knows that it's God that's preventing her from having children in that moment. Look with me at this again on the screen, verse 2. The Lord has prevented me... So she's willing to run with that. She's willing to run with the thought that, okay, maybe I'm not going to be the one. She's unwilling to wait on God any longer, so she creates her own plan. How many of us can identify with that when it comes to spiritual issues that we try to outthink God? Guilty. I do it. You've, you've done it, I'm sure. I've done it throughout the course of my life. We get really, really good with that. We typically spend a lifetime coming up with strategies of our own instead of waiting on God. So Sarai seems to consider it her responsibility to act on God's behalf. And here's the thought that usually goes with it. I'm just going to help God out a little bit here. Obviously, his plan needs a little tweaking. So I'm going to do what I can to fix this. When we walk through trials and when we walk through difficulties and testings in our life, it is so incredibly important to remember that God's delays are not God's denials. God's delays are not always God's denials. Sometimes it's a denial. But you know what happens in the midst of that? Satan messes with our mind and he begins to whisper to us. If he really loved you, things wouldn't be this way. If he really cared about you, he would resolve that issue for you. Things would be different. Now, now that echoes of Genesis 3. That's the same game that he played with Adam and Eve. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So sadly, Sarai does exactly what most of us can identify with. She assembles in her mind a do-it-yourself project to fix God's plan and her proposal is that she's going to keep the code of Hammurabi. I know most of you probably don't know what that is. I'll get back to it in just a minute. But there's this code that operates in this period of time within the Ur of the Chaldees where they came from as a family before they moved to Canaan. They knew well what the code of Hammurabi was. It essentially, it entailed this, giving a maid or a single woman to a husband so that his line doesn't die out. It's an early form of a surrogate mother. We'll come back to that. The bigger issue is this. It's not only a failure to trust God, 
And, and by that I mean a failure to trust God that he's going to actually keep his word. She's forcing the issue by pressuring Abram with really ungodly counsel. What an incredibly tangled web that we can weave when we decide that God isn't moving fast enough. And so we begin to think, my plan is better. I've got a better strategy. I have a better solution. I'm going to help God out. We know that's what's going on because of the very next verse, 16.2 part B. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. If you've grown up in church, you're familiar probably with the book of Deuteronomy, and maybe you're familiar with what's called the Jewish Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word here is Shema, and it's called the Shema when Moses was calling the people to obedience in God. But look at the definition for the word Shema. To hear intelligently with obedience in other words, you're hearing something, you're processing exactly what it is, and you're going to act on it because you like what you're hearing. So there's some degree of obedience involved. So we're told that Abram shamad the voice of Sarai, his wife. Now, this is really similar to Genesis 3, as I was referring to. The serpent, Lucifer, comes to Eve and says, God's holding out on you. His plan is not good. You could be so much more. You could be as God. And so Eve decides to circumvent God's plan in favor of gaining a blessing on her own. So God has to actually call them out on that issue. And when he talks to Adam, he says to Adam in Genesis 3, look with me at this verse, because you have shamad, the voice of your wife, because you have obeyed her, Here's the issue that's consistent in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 16. Abram obeyed the voice of Sarai, not the voice of God. God had already rejected the offer of a substitute heir. Abram had offered that Eliezer, the young man who was living in his house, he could be my heir, God. And God said, no. You look at that in Genesis 15, you'll see it. God said, no. The child that's coming to you is going to come from your own loins. It's going to come from your body. So God had already rejected the substitute. Now, just zooming out here at about 10,000 feet. I'm just speculating here, but I'm guessing that 75-year-old Sarai didn't have too much struggle talking Abram into this strategy. Right? Are we tracking? Like, okay, I got this young 20-something Egyptian woman and I'm going to give her to you for your wife, and maybe you can go produce children with them. I'm thinking that wasn't too hard of a sell. I'm guessing Abram wasn't going, oh, no, don't make me do that. But rather, it's like, oh, okay, if you insist. Right? We're following the flow of what usually would go in a, a man's mind in this situation. I said a moment ago that this word, listen, he listened to the, wife, the voice of his wife, this this word Shema is a synonym for obedience. To hear something and to act on it because you like what it's saying. Abram's failure is in heeding her instructions without really weighing out the implications. Uh, like Michael and Marla have been married a long time, Lori and I have been married a long time, I've been married long enough to know 
that when you hear your wife communicate something, you really guys have to listen close and then say, here's what I heard you say, only to find out, no, that's not what she was saying. So here's what I think is probably going on in the layers of this conversation from 4,000 years ago, because men and wife relationships don't change. It's very consistent throughout time that I believe what's going on here is the possibility that what Sarah is doing is she's really asking for reassurance of Abram's love for her. Is that what's going on? Probably, probably to some degree. Does she wish for Abram to turn her down? Perhaps. But here's what I definitely know. What I definitely know is Sarah needs to be reminded of the covenant-keeping, promise-making God who sees all and knows all. Does she need to be reminded of that? Absolutely. And that's where Abram fails. Because Abram appears to have obeyed without really hearing his wife, nor is he thinking this thing through. He's not thinking through the implications. So verse 3 is kind of a summary of what I just stated. Here it comes. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife took Sarai, the Hagar, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband as his wife. Now, you might remember just because of I hinted at it a moment ago, and also if you were here for the study of chapter 15, what we found is that Hagar was actually given as a reward or as a purchase price to Abram and to his entourage as a bridal price when Pharaoh thought he was buying Sarah when he thought he was going to get Sarah as his bride. And so as a result, he blessed Abram with all kinds of things. Look at me on the screen at chapter 12. Therefore, this is speaking of Pharaoh, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants. So check this on Hagar. This is a real-life human being, as real as any of us sitting here today. A real young woman with a desire for a future, and she's become a bargaining chip. And now she's been legally made a binding wife, not a concubine. She's a binding, legally binding wife because Abram and Sarai are following this ancient practice of polygamy. And they decided to bring her into the household. So verse 4, he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised. I'll come back to that word in just a minute, qualal, and means to be cursed in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Mark this down. Anytime humans hatch man-made solutions to God-sized issues, you will always continually find failure. And our culture is full of examples of that. You don't need me to cite them all to you. But we try and fix God-sized issues with man-sized solutions. And in this case, this leads to this really ancient domestic dispute that starts out this way. Look what you did. 
And he would turn and say to her, but you told me to. And you can hear the voices coming out of the tent, can't you? Because it's such a familiar thing. They're in this place now where this tangled web has led to a huge fight. In the ancient world, few are more discouraged and downcast than women who struggle to have a child. And part of the evidence of that is when Hagar immediately conceives, she's going to use Sarah's discouraged, broken heart to her advantage, and she begins to display this really haughty attitude, which was very common of women at that time. If, if someone was in their village or in their tribe that didn't have children, they would mock them and make fun of them and treat them as second-class citizens. And that's that word that I said I would come back to, qualel. This particular word means to not just make light of, but to mock them and to despise them. This is like mean girls in junior high, looking for every opportunity to use cruel and really cutting insults. And Abram, for his part, he's not going to escape this unscathed. Sarai turns her, her biting focus on him and vents her grief and begins blaming and then demands that Hagar be dealt with. I know from talking to enough counselors and reading enough books that by far the two greatest complaints that women in marriage relationships have about the men in their marriage relationships is that the men fail to listen well and that they fail to take spiritual leadership. There's a huge expectation that it's going to be perfect. But that's the areas that women most often complain about. Uh, watch in the story how those issues come out. Sarai's stinging rebuke serves only to cause Abram to retreat further. Instead of being told, you're a really great husband, He's being told, you're a failure, and so he wants to run the opposite direction, and he's going to do anything to get out of this situation. So he fails not only in the beginning of this whole episode, but he fails again by trying to take the easy way out. Watch how this unfolds. This is, this is just make it go away. Old Testament conflict avoidance. Even though Hagar is now legally his wife, he's going to treat her as yesterday's trash. And mind you, there's nothing corrupt going on here legally. This is all very legal. They can do this. According to the law, the age is permissible, but it's not God's way. Verse 6, behold, this is Abram speaking, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. I know it's really subtle, but note this. Even though she's been made legally binding his wife, he does not refer to her as anything other than a maid. Behold, the slave girl, the maid is in your power. Now, this is historically the second millennium B.C. They live in a time when the Code of Hammurabi is well known. There's multiple codes that have been written into law that people are acting under and they understand it. There's the Nuzi tablets, N-U-Z-I. There's the old Assyrian tablets and, and the codes and the Neo-Assyrian codes. 
and there's the Code of Hammurabi. I'm going to focus on that one for just a moment for you. We're going to put an image up on the screen for you of a stele, and this was uncovered in 1901. This particular stele is um, six feet tall. It's carved out of granite, and it contains the Code of Hammurabi. Some of you have been to Europe, some of you have been to France, some of you have been to Paris. Maybe you've been to the Louvre, which is a museum in Paris. If you intend to go there in the future, or maybe have the privilege of being able to do that, or you've been there in the past, you would have seen this because that's where it's at. The Code of Hammurabi that was carved 4,000 years ago, uncovered in 1901, was put in the Louvre. Now at the very top is this relief or this carving of the king of Babylon, Hammurabi. But just under it, he begins talking about himself. And this guy really, really likes himself. So let me show you where this code's coming from. This is written in 1792 BC. It says this, Hammurabi, the prince called of Bel am I. Bel is the god that he worshiped. Making riches and increase beyond compare. Sublime patron of Ikur. Ikur is another god that he worshiped. Then he goes on to talk about himself who conquered the four quarters of the world, made great the name of Babylon. This guy does not have a self-confidence problem. And he likes his code so well that he demanded that they be carved in granite. And one of the 282 codes that was written on a stele is this quote that you see on the screen. If a man take a wife, and she give this man a maidservant as wife, and she bear him children, and this maid assume equality with the wife, because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. So the Code of Hammurabi, which was alive and well and well known by the people who lived in the Ur of Chaldees, even though they're now living in Canaan land, they understood that the Code forbids a second wife to assert equality with the first wife on pain of demotion, and the pain of demotion would be to slave status. So note this, what Sarai's doing is completely legal. But just because it's legal doesn't make it right in God's eyes. Rather, what you find here is a clear demonstration of what happens when we fail to trust God to keep his word. God made a promise. The question is always, every single time, do we trust him to be faithful to keep his word? Do we trust him to be faithful to fulfill it? Well, for Abram's part, allowing Sarai's voice to take precedence over God's voice is relinquishing spiritual leadership. Within the home, he hasn't exerted a clear directive about who God is. In other words, this. He allowed his wife's emotions and her true hurt. She's really in pain over not having children. And he's allowed that to overrule God's activity, which is really dangerous. And you see that being modeled here because your feelings will betray you every time. So that's why I said this is like Adam listening to Eve in Genesis 3. Abram's completely an accomplice to the sin. Here's how. Here's how he failed in spiritual leadership in the home. He failed by not refusing what his wife came to him with, with ungodly counsel. Even though it was legal, in God's eyes, it was not right. But here's where he also failed. He failed to remind his wife of God's capacity, who God is, and what God can do. 
And as a consequence, you find a dramatic shift in the story. Hagar, the slave girl, now runs away for her life. And you find her in the desert. Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by, a, by the spring on the way to Shur. Um, Shur is the name of a city at that period of time, but it's also the name of a wall, a defense wall, which goes from southern Canaan land all the way down to the border of Egypt. So when it says she's by the Shur spring, she's on her way back to Egypt. And you can't blame her. So if you have your Bible open this morning, you might even want to mark that this is the very first appearance of the angel of the Lord. And this is really significant. I want to help you to understand why that's so significant. Because this is a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. And it's the first recorded instance in the Bible of 58 times you find Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. So this is not a common angel. I'll help you to understand how we know that for sure. So I told you what Shur is, it's the city wall, and Hagar's on her way back to Egypt because of this. Most people, when they're going through times of really big struggle in their life, they naturally are going to go to what is safe. What, what do I know that's familiar? Well, the only thing she knows that was safe and familiar was her life in Egypt. So it's logical she's going to head back towards Egypt. She's got nowhere else to turn. She's completely destitute. So you can easily picture this moment. A young woman who's pregnant with nothing more than the clothes on her back. Destitute of any survival skills. And she's found sitting at this oasis in the desert. Now, I would add to that Hopefully, to some degree, she's remorseful because although she didn't ask for these circumstances, this unrelenting attitude towards Sarai is certainly fed into the events. She was not kind at all. But mind you, it's in this moment that God enters into the scene. And we suddenly find that that is bigger than all that just transpired. And here's what's bigger about it. Are you noticing that God is completely aware. God, as you see in this story, is aware of everything that's unfolding. In spite of the fact that the humans have brought all these events on themselves, and to be sure, this domestic dispute has produced this strain and this mess, and it stems completely from disobedience to God, the author of Genesis is going out of his way to let us know God is absolutely aware of even the most minute details. He knows her name. He knows where she came from. He knows who she belongs to. He knows what's going to happen. And then he begins talking about the future. If you're walking through great difficulty right now in your life, if you're going through times of testing, do not think for a moment that God is unaware or that he's unconcerned. Watch how God responds. Verse 8. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, just zooming out again to 30,000 feet, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we're being told here how he appears, but I'm totally guessing it was not on a white horse flaming in fire. Okay? 
because she's not petrified. She's not scared to death of his appearance, but rather he's coming in an ordinary fashion as he did with the woman at the well in Samaria in the New Testament, just walking up in street clothes, engaging in a conversation. But don't miss the bigger picture here. God the Son is stepping through time and appears to a broken woman in the wilderness to bring clarification to what's going on in her life. And note first, right off the top, He knows her by name. If if you believe that God knows you by name, would you say amen right now? I find this so intricately and precisely precious. We're not only told that God knows you by name, but when you inherit heaven one day, we're told that he has a new name for you because he knows you that well, a name you don't even know. God knows you that well. He knows all the details. So he knows her by name, but also notice what comes next. The Lord calls her Sarai's maid, not Abram's wife. That's really important because in God's eyes, Sarai is Abram's wife. See, they've concocted this plan. They've come up with this scheme And what you find here is God did not accept Hagar as Abram's wife. He doesn't say Hagar, Abram's wife. He says Hagar, Sarah's maid. Because not everything that is legal or even appears to be successful on the surface is approved by God. Now, you may read this differently, but this verse is telling me that God has rejected the entire scheme because he has something better in store. So he follows it up by saying, where have you come from? Which she answers very quickly, and he says, where are you going? Which she does not answer, and it's not as though God doesn't know. What he's doing is he's drawing her into the conversation. Uh, Just think it through on a real-world basis. Where would she go? She hasn't been in Egypt for more than 10 years, and she was negotiated away as a bargaining chip in a deal that went bad. And, and now she's been assigned to this family, and now she's pregnant? It's not the reasonable thing for her to go back to Egypt, but that tells you just how desperate she really is. That sets the base for this next statement from God. Verse 9, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. I've got to tell you, church, that... That's a really hard ask. Just think of the individual in your life, if you've got someone in your past who has mistreated you to the degree that you would want to run the other direction, even into the wilderness rather than be with that person. That's a really hard ask on God's part. So what we're talking about here is total surrender. Considering what has just happened to her, That's why I'm convinced, as I examine this, clearly Hagar has to be in this place where she is believing God. I want you to note what's next. It's only in association with her believing God, in other words, with her return and with her submission, that then the Lord offers her his blessing. And now you find out how to know this is not a common angel, but this is God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, verse 10. 
Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Zoom back out a minute. What more could you possibly ask for? You're a runaway with nothing. A moment ago, you had no future. You just have a trail of failed relationships. And now God himself comes on the scene and says, no, that's completely wrong. It's completely the opposite. Only God can turn things around like that. Only God could do that. So he is the one speaking in a prophetic, perfect, personal tense when he says, I will. I will do this. And it's demonstrating complete authority over the circumstances. See, he's not delivering a memo on behalf of God. He's demonstrating he is the source. So it's very subtle here, but God has just done a gender reveal. Because to this point, she doesn't know if she's carrying a male or female, but God just said, I'm going to give you many descendants out of this child. Well, they only tracked descendants out of male children. So immediately, she's just had this gender reveal done. And also, God's going to name him in just a few moments, as you'll see. So this angel of the Lord is promising things only God can do. And it's in the verse, first person. And as we end in just a moment, in verse 13, she actually comes out and calls him God. Now, there's really significant overtones of the Abrahamic covenant going on here. When he says, there are going to be too many, the too numerous to count. In chapter 17, he says, there are going to be princes and rulers coming from this child. But first, he has to qualify the nature and character. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. If you don't know too many Hebrew words, and I'm guessing you don't, you might want to memorize that one. Ishmael means the God who hears. Do you believe that God hears you? I'm, I'm sure you do. Ishmael. So every time from this point forward, when Hagar calls her son in for supper, Ishmael, oh, the God who hears. Ishmael, it's time to wash up. The God who hears. Ishmael, it's time to go to bed. The God who hears, constantly reminded in her life of this desperate moment in time when God stepped in. And this God who hears her in her despair transitions very quickly to the nature and the character of the man and his offspring. Because this child is destined to become a problem for the world. That may catch you by surprise if you didn't know this story. He's going to become the progenitor of a really great nation on this planet, and it's going to produce some impressive men and women, some of whom who will also become Christ followers one day, and you're going to sing alongside in heaven one day with. But there's a problem that's going to come from him and from many of his offspring. Verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. It's remarkable that when you read these things about God, what you find is that he's always concerned with the nature and the character of his creation. So he looks forward in time a couple thousand years, and he tells Hagar about the future. And he begins describing the Arab-Israeli conflict. 
Now, certainly, she doesn't understand what's going on when God says his hand's going to be against everyone and everyone's hand is going to be against him. Hagar could not possibly know what the next 4,000 years of earth history will result in when the clashes between the Arab and Israeli nations unfold. Nor could she possibly foresee that out of Ishmael's line will come forth this world religion called Islam that all comes from Ishmael. But mind you this, God's not labeling Ishmael with any derogatory names here. Matter of fact, if you read one of the translations of the earliest versions of this, it actually says he's going to be a wild ass. Now, we've made that derogatory in our world, but that's not what that was saying here. He's referring to a group of people who are going to be loners on the world stage who don't want other nations interfering with them, and they don't want other nations to intermingle with them. So here's the imagery that God gives. The wild donkeys, they lived on the Sinai Peninsula, and they traveled in herds. And when the wild donkeys moved from one location to another, they became nomadic, and they would search for another region that had good grazing. But these wild donkeys were very territorial. And so when another creature would come into the area where they were grazing at, they became violent, and they began kicking and using their hoofs trying to kill them. That's the imagery that God has created here. He's saying this one, Ishmael, he's going to be characterized as an aggressor. And he's going to initiate unprovoked attacks against his brothers. So Ishmael will live with this attitude of hostility side by side with the offspring of Isaac, which God calls his brothers. That's all just detail. The bigger picture, though, is the angel of the Lord. Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate God, arriving on earth, and every one of the 58 times you find it in the Old Testament, you find a major event happening on planet earth right after he arrives. And I want you to check the consistency of what happens when God the Son comes to earth. Check it this way. The Son of God leaves heaven, comes to earth, and gives a future to a broken, lost individual. And in the midst of it, he reveals his mercy and his grace and his love and his relational nature that he even knows her by name. Jesus is revealing his nature and his character in Genesis 16. So no wonder we have this ending in verse 13. Watch what Hagar says. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? She suddenly knows who this is that she's dealing with. I can't believe I'm alive. You're the God who really sees. And she believed him. Therefore, we get this summary. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. We're just about to take communion, and I just want to give you observations I came away from this with. A big observation for me is that 
when God cannot rule, and I don't mean that he's incapable, but where people resist his rule, where God cannot rule, he overrules because God always accomplishes his purposes. That's one. I find three characters emerging from this story. Sarai obviously is one and she did not act in faith and her primary concern seems to be the social stigma of her barrenness, which led Abram obviously into believing God's plan wasn't working, we gotta come up with another strategy. Here's the second one though, it's Abram. He's totally failed by heeding really bad counsel. And many of us fail when we fail to not listen well and not think through the consequences. And just as a side note, this is for free. Guys, if you're married, don't use this passage as an excuse not to listen to your wife, right? There's godly advice and there's ungodly advice. Sarai gave ungodly advice. But here's a third character, and the third character is Satan. Satan wants us to think that our disobedience detours become the permanent road for the rest of our life. That's what he uses against us. He would have been perfectly happy for Hagar to disappear into the wilderness, for Abram and Sarah to divorce and go different ways, for fighting to continue in this relationship. But God had to intervene. It's just one of many of Satan's lies when he tries to tell people that that disobedience thing you did, that's your path for the rest of your life. Those are lesser, though, to me than this great sin. And the great sin is the commitment of not believing God. And it's a very simple thing to say it that way without clarifying what's going on. The great sin committed here in this story is in not believing God for this reason, because of the magnitude of the commitment, the magnitude of the promise that God would tell an elderly couple, whom you're going to find next week, are in Abram's case, 90s, when he bears a child and his wife, Sarai, in her 80s. The magnitude of the promise was so great it actually caused people to laugh, like, you believe that? Really? You think God, God doesn't work that way. See, the, the magnitude of the promise was so big. Check this in your world today. It seemed unbelievable. And so much time had gone by, they really questioned whether or not God would do what he said he would do. So let's just check ourselves. Yes or no? Was Isaac born? Yes or no? This is participatory. Okay. <laughs> Second one. Was Isaac born to both Abram and Sarai in their elderly years? Did a great nation arise from the lineage of Isaac? Yeah. Everything God said would happen, happened. Because if God promises, he will do it. So, if God said, I'm leaving for a little while, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and by the way, while I'm gone, tell people about me and what I did, and 
don't forget what I did for you because I'm coming back again. If that God promised that he's coming back, will he be back? Okay, like 20 of you believe that. If God promised that he's coming back again, will he be back? That's his promise, even though it's been a very, very, very long period of time. You can believe it. Now, that's very interesting because that matches what we would read for communion this morning. Buried within this, if you haven't heard this before, listen very closely to the instructions. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's why. For as often as you do this new hope, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you're about to be a witness that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you pick up the elements, you're saying, I believe that he died for me, and I believe that he's coming again. The New Testament writers understood that. That's why they put that in here. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. It's a reality. God made a promise that he's going to take you with him one day. He has forgiven you of your sins. Eternity is your destiny. If you believe Him and believe His Word, your witness here this morning is not going to be taken lightly. You're saying to the person on your right and on your left, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pick up these elements because I believe. There's the warning that comes with this huge instruction. If you're getting tired of sitting here, just suck it up a minute, okay? Hang on. <laughs> Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Meaning... If you don't believe that, there's no reason to participate in communion. That's why we have open communion here, because it's open for those who believe. You don't have to be a member at New Hope. But it does say to examine yourself, making sure that that relationship you have with God is in line. And if you have something to confess or deal with, before you pick up the elements, do it in your seat. There'll be individuals in the prayer room afterwards if you need somebody to pray with you, but right now, this moment to examine yourself is for you to talk to the Father about any issue you might have between you and Him. And when you're ready, come to the tables in the front or the tables in the back, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now is between you and the Father.